I want to say by, by way of just introduction to this last session, everything we've said so far has been very, very general. So somebody who maybe uses a different Bible uh, could say, yep, God makes some promises about the Scripture. Somebody who uses a different translation could say, yep, this is God's purposes for the Scriptures. Uh, and so in this final lesson, we, we want to just not talk about generally, but now in this final lesson, we want to come zero in on why do we use the King James Bible? Why, why that Bible? Why, why a Bible that's 400 years old? Why not a newer Bible? Uh, what are our reasons? And the reason can't just be, well, because pastor likes it. That's a good reason, but that doesn't matter to the people outside the street. There, there needs to be a conviction that we have. And so in this, this final session, we want to talk about this from the standpoint of the preservation of Scripture. Uh, I think I just went the wrong way, Brother Andrew. Uh, I might get some help on that one. We'll figure it out. I'll just sort of look at these. These are cool pictures, so we'll look at it that way as well. So let me give you a little bit of a way of introduction. When I grew up in a preacher's home, I, I did not know that different Bible translations existed. I didn't know that. Uh, to me, they, they were just, there was just one Bible, and we all had the same thing, and, and there wasn't this idea of multiple Bible translations. That didn't exist to me. So when I thought about that, I remember when I was probably 10 or 11 years old, I went to uh, church with my aunt and uncle. My parents were going away for the weekend, and so they took us to my aunt and uncle's house and went to church with them on a Sunday morning. I, as a 10-year-old boy, had forgotten my Bible. My aunt, that's all right, we have extra Bibles in the pews. Okay. So I went to this church that uh, would be very similar to the size of your church here, uh, a big southern church uh, there in Georgia. I got there. I pulled the Bible out. <clears throat> and here's what I began thinking as a kid, 11 years old, 10 or 11 years old. How can a guy who pastors such a large church not be able to read? That's what I was thinking. Because I was reading <clears throat> the Bible, and what he was saying didn't match what, what I was reading. And I was puzzled by it. So after the church, my aunt, how'd you, like to, how'd you like the church, Mike? I said, well, they were friendly people. I had a good time, but, but what? You're a preacher. I'd already learned this expression as a kid, bless his heart. I threw that in there because I knew what I was about to say might not quite sound right. So I, I threw that. I already learned that, that the language that was important. I said, that preacher, bless his heart, he just can't read. And she goes, what are you talking about? I said, well, a guy who preaches at such a large church, I just, it was amazing to me that he can't even read the Bible. Mike, what are you talking about? He said, well, I pulled the Bible out of the pew like he told me to, and I was following along with it, and he was slaughtering it. And whatever he read didn't match what I was reading. She goes, huh, match fine. Which Bible did you pull? And I described the Bible. She said, oh, that's our Sunday night Bible. <laughs> had a translation for Sunday morning. They had a translation for Sunday night. That's the way that church did it, which is confusing then. It's still confusing now. Uh, and so as a kid, I, just, I was just confused the whole service. I don't even know what he preached on. The whole time I was just waiting for the service to be over so I could ask my parents, why can't he read? Uh, that was sort of my introduction to realize there was different translations. In 1982, uh, my dad was ordained to be an assistant pastor and then later on a pastor. Uh, And uh, the church that ordained him uh, gave him a New American Standard Bible. My dad goes, what's this? Well, preacher, we know you preach from the King James, but we thought this might be good in your study. And, uh, well... Thank you. And so it stayed in the box. <laughs> it's still in the box. Uh, I have that Bible now. I pull it out sometimes in my Bible uh, classes. I'll pull it out. And I said, now, this Bible right here uh, is 1982. This Bible is 36 years old. This Bible is five years old. But if I didn't tell you the age, you wouldn't know which one was older. One looks older because I used it. One looks brand new because it's never been used. We'll talk about that in a minute as well. In 1997 or so, I flew back to Michigan where my wife is from. They had a new pastor. And he invited me to breakfast. 
And being a Baptist, I said yes. <laughs> Where two or three are gathered together, let's eat. <clears throat> so we went to breakfast. And I ordered. He said, it's my treats. I said, great. And so I uh, laid it out there, what I wanted. And while I'm eating, he's pulling out uh, his briefcase. He's putting books on the stand. He's got Bibles out there and legal pads. And I'm like, what in the world is this? And basically, that day, he began to ask me questions I had never considered. He had hoped to show me discrepancies in my Bible, that I would lose confidence in my Bible, and as a result, move to a new American standard that he was using. That was his goal for that meeting. What he didn't tell me was the alleged contradictions he was showing me also existed in his Bible. He forgot to mention that uh, because that would not have helped his story. What he had hoped to maybe shake my trust began a decade-long journey of what do I believe about this? Not what did my dad hand me, but what do I believe? What's the evidence say? What, how do I defend this? I, I, need, I need reasons. I don't just need hope or fluffy talk. I, I need reasons. And that sort of led us to this study here. In Jeremiah, chapter number 37, I'll invite you to turn there. We'll start there. Jeremiah, chapter 37. Jeremiah is having a conversation with King Zedekiah. This is the zero hour for the southern kingdom. God has been telling them that this judgment is coming since the days of Isaiah, when Hezekiah said that not in your days, but in the generations to come, this nation is going to come and take your children away captive and make them eunuchs, and that day is about to come. This is a zero hour. And that's the context of Zedekiah's question to Jeremiah. With Babylon looming, the threat looming, and with people saying, we need to fight, Zedekiah has a question for Jeremiah, the man of God, verse 17. Then Zedekiah the king sent and took him out, took, just taking Jeremiah out. And the king asked Jeremiah secretly in his house and said, Is there any word from the Lord? And Jeremiah said, There is. For so said he, Thou shalt be delivered in the hand of the king of Babylon. In the context, Zedekiah wants to know, is there a prophetic word from the Lord concerning what decision I need to make? And Jeremiah said, as a matter of fact, there is. God has said you're going to be delivered to the king of Babylon if you try to fight them. And he says, moreover, there's some other words I'll share with you as well. So in the context, that's what's going on. But the question is what I want to use as sort of a starting point for this final session on preservation. Today, is there a word from the Lord? Is there a word from the Lord we can emphatically, dogmatically say, yes, this is it. And I believe Jeremiah's answer to Zedekiah's question is the same answer to our question. There is. In our churches, sometimes you have people that are King James preference. They like it. Uh, They like the way it sounds. Uh, It sounds rhythmic. It sounds poetic. In fact, uh, the the translators of our Bible, uh, what they wrote in the title page was, appointed to be read. It was translated with the idea of being read out loud. So that's why when Jesus says, all power is given to me in heaven and earth, our translation says power, not authority. It just sounds, there's something to the ear when you say that power out loud as opposed to authority. Uh, It was appointed to be read. So some people, they have a preference. They like the way it sounds. They like the rhyming and the meter and they they like the syntax. And to them, it sort of sounds like sacred language, the King James language. Uh, some are King James by convenience. Well, that's what my church uses, so I just use it. Uh, that's all my grandparents used it, so I'll just use it. I'm too, I don't want to change. 
Others are King James by conviction. And so I'm coming from the standpoint that there's a conviction based on the evidence and based on what God has given us in his word. By way of just a brief introduction, uh, there's some notes here in your, in your notes, some timelines, if you will. 1853 to 1881, two men began to work with a team of others to update the King James Bible. Granted, the language had adapted some in the 270 years or so during that time, 250 years. And so they received permission from the king to update the language. That's not what they did. What they did instead was they created a new text and translated from that text a new translation. It was called in 1881 the Revised Version. There were some Americans who worked on that committee as well. So they made a a deal with the Americans not to translate from this text for 20 years. They wanted 20 years to sort of flood the market with the revised version. In 1901, the Americans then began to publish their own translation of this. It was called the American Standard Version. In 1952, there was the revised Standard Version here in America. And that Bible was unique for the fact for the first time in Isaiah 7.14, the Bible no longer prophesied that a virgin shall conceive... It now prophesied that a maid shall conceive. There's nothing miraculous about that. That happens all the time. Maidens conceive all the time. There's nothing miraculous about that. There's nothing prophetic about that. That's like saying, I believe somebody here tonight has a headache. Well, that's, yeah, probably so. I mean, I believe somebody right here could use air conditioning. Yeah, probably. I mean, that's a lucky guess. I mean, that's just the laws of statistics. But when I say a virgin shall conceive... That puts me in some rare territory, doesn't it? Uh, again, in the revised, verse, revised Standard Version, 1 John 5, 7, which is perhaps the greatest verse on the Trinity, was removed from the text. Now, others had done it previously with a footnote and put it at the bottom, but the Revised Version in 1952 was unique in that it, it took verse 6, broke it in half, and called the second half of verse 7 so that the numbers stayed in place. No footnote at the bottom. You'd never know that the Trinitarian formula had been taken out. In 1971, the New American Standard Version came out. 2001, the English Standard Version. 2004, the Holman Christian Standard Version. 2011, the International Standard Version. 2017, the Christian Standard Version. It seems like the standard keeps changing. There's a new standard every five or ten years, right? And so when you think about the, the context of where this is going, I, I want to say by just way of introduction, I believe this is in your notes as well, It's not that the King James is against 2,600 other English translations. There's a lot of English translations that are almost ridiculous that don't even really deserve to be called Bibles. Okay, but that's uh, that's for another another session. So sometimes you see how many English Bibles, and you can find a list of 2,600. And it's not the King James number one against 2,600. Really, it's it's one against one. It's a tale of two cities. It's really a question of two texts. That's, that's the bottom line, a tale of two cities, two texts, represented by two cities, Alexandria, Egypt, and Antioch of Syria, where they were first called Christians. The received text is what sometimes we say our Bible comes from, a lot of different names. Uh, in fact, when that pastor began to take me to breakfast, uh, I didn't even realize all the different synonyms people use to describe the source of our Bible. About the time you think you have it figured out and think you know the answers, you realize you don't even know the questions. 
It was just a big, big, massive amount of information to get my mind wrapped around. And so I, I like the phrase receive text. Some people call it the Byzantine text. Some people call it the Latin name, the Textus Receptus. The name isn't so much important, but understanding that that's a source. And the other source is called the critical text. And so that's, that's coming from Egypt, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Marketers, when they're marketing new Bibles, they have a goal. Sell. I have a goal for rightly divided. Sell. I hope you'll like it and tell all your friends about it. Post that. I'm not kidding. Uh, when you think about it, marketers, they have a goal, don't they? They want to, they want to sell. So how do they sell it? Often, this book is easier to read. Right? Oh, well, who doesn't want something easier to read? This book is even easier than the easier to read. <laughs> the most easiest version to read. It's just like on and on and on, right? What they don't tell you, this comes from a different text than what you're used to. They don't, that, that doesn't help the marketing. Does that make sense? So it's not just easier to read. It's what text is it from? And so uh, as sort of a context, the tale of two cities, hopefully that gets us ready to understand Alexandria and Antioch. Now, these represent competing philosophies. That's what they, these two cities. Alexandria, uh, one of the famous Christian leaders from there was a guy by the name of Origen, or Origen. Uh, that was early 250s, that time frame. He believed that scriptures had hidden meanings. Sometimes you even hear that even today, the Bible code, right? Uh, what is the seventh letter of the seventh verse of the seventh chapter? And that, it's great, but what's it mean in context is even more important, right? But they're looking for a code. Have you ever read that backwards? Well, I'm just trying to understand it forwards, you know? Uh, they're looking for codes. They're looking for something hidden, and that's nothing new. That, that finds its roots right here in the philosophies that came out of Alexandria, Egypt. As a result of the Bible having hidden meanings, Origen is recorded as saying, so I have no use for the Bible in the literal words. You and I, we depend upon the literal words for the interpretation. He didn't. The words sort of got in the way sometimes of his interpretation. <laughs> it's like the preacher who says, uh, I need a verse, I need a verse, I need a verse. I found one, and then he closes his Bible and never comes back to it. Because it's not really a Bible message, it's just his thoughts, and he just wanted a Bible verse to jump from. Origen doesn't really need Bible verses. He already has ideas that he believes is hidden in the Bible, and so he's not careful with the words. As a result of that, the, the consequence of that, and the consequence of that type of hermeneutics, is that the words become lost. They're not as careful with the preservation. So let me, let me say this up front. If I were to take a copy of the critical text... Put it over here. This is where most of those 2,600 Bibles come from. And I were to take a copy of the received text, which is where the King James Bible comes from. Here's what we would notice. This text right here is longer than this text right here. That's just a fact. Now, how the facts get interpreted is sometimes where people get upset. Uh, over here, the, the argument is they took out words of the Bible. That's, that's the Over here, they added to the Bible. So there's this competing arguments going back and forth. Uh, and that's sort of the philosophy here. And so the idea behind the hermeneutics of Alexandria was allegorical hermeneutics. Uh, the Bible has hidden meanings. And I've read some of the ancient uh, sermons that uh, come from that type of thinking. You read about uh, the Good Samaritan, and uh, basically the donkey becomes 
uh, the church and it's just all kind of weird things. And, and, and sometimes you say, how did you get that from the text? And you have to be honest, you didn't. <laughs> you just bring it all there. And so this is the, uh, this is the idea from Alexandria. On the other hand, the other competing philosophy comes uh, as rooted often in Antioch. And one of the famous preachers from there is a guy by the name of Chrysostom. John was his name. Chrysostom is a Greek word that means golden mouth or golden tongue. It was basically a nickname because he was an eloquent preacher. He believed that you should preach the scriptures, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. You interpret scripture with the scripture. Many things we've all heard throughout the years... That's rooted in this hermeneutic that comes out of Antioch. We call it normal or literal or historical grammatical interpretation. That, that finds its root. So consequently, when you believe that the meaning is attached to the words, you want to be very, very careful to make sure you have all of the words when you hand it to the next generation. So in the background, that's some of this competing philosophy that's going on. All right, with that in mind, this is the timeline I alluded to a moment ago. Uh, a facsimile of Gutenberg's press. The West Cotton Hort Greek text, maybe this is another way to just sort of see the same information. Revised Standard, American Standard. Uh, actually, 1881 should just be revised version. I just caught that. Uh, no standard in 1881. <laughs> they already had a standard. It was called the King James. Okay. Uh, 1971, New American Standard. 2001, English Standard. 2004, the Holman Christian Standard. 2011, International Standard. Some of these Bibles along the way, all right? Now, there is a word from the Lord, and we want to look at, first of all, God's promises. The promises of God show that there is a word from the Lord. The promises of God show it. So let's talk about that. You ever had broken promises? (laughs) My mom hates the story I'm about to tell you. When I was probably 12 years old, I asked what most kids ask in the summertime in the dog days of summer in Georgia. Mom, can we go to Dairy Queen? (laughs) My mom answered with a brilliant statement, a brilliant answer that I would learn years later would be my best friend as a parent. Not right now. (laughs) Not right now literally means I hope you forget and don't ask me again. (laughs) But to a kid, what it means is we, we are going... Just not at this moment. We are going. That's 35 years ago. Still waiting for my ice cream. My mom since then has, and she, she listens to me sometimes when I'm recorded, and, and so she's come to and said, Mike, I'm going to take you to Dairy Queen. I said, oh, no, you're not ruining my illustration now. I've waited 30 years plus, and I, I, it's just over. I'll get my own ice cream from here on out. But in my mind, as an 11- or 12-year-old boy, that constituted a broken promise. Now, my mom wasn't promising from her perspective, but to me, it sounded like a promise. It's amazing as a kid. I don't remember all the promises my family kept. My human nature wants to remember the ones I thought were broken. I have good news for us today, though. God keeps his promises. So when we think about his promises, let's turn to Psalm chapter 12. Psalm 12, verse 6 and 7. I want to put it in the context here. I don't want to just read those verses without giving you a context of what David is uh, struggling with. David is the godly man, and in David's mind, he's being attacked. Specifically, when you read the first five verses, David is being attacked by the words of his enemy. So when David is being attacked by the words of his enemy, God wants to comfort him 
with words that will comfort. And yes, David, the words of your enemy are hurting right now, but I want you to know the words of your enemies, they'll pass, but the word of God will not. And that's sort of the context. So verse number 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times, thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So in the context, God is saying, the words of your enemies are going to not prevail. The words of the Lord are pure words that will be kept for every generation. This is a promise. Now, sometimes people want to say that what God is promising is that God would preserve the godly people or specifically that God would preserve the poor and needy. Well, if that's true, then God has definitely preserved the poor into 2019 because we're all here, right? And so that, that would be a true statement, but it's not what the context is saying. There's a technical argument here. Uh, the word words, uh, the Hebrew language has gender to their nouns. Um, English language, we keep it nice and simple. We think it's simple. It sounds simple to us because we grew up with it. But a lot of languages have gender with their nouns. Uh, so Hebrew is, an ex- is, is no exception to that. Spanish would be like this as well, and French and Italian, and, and a lot of those European languages would have uh, gender to them. The word words is feminine. The word them in verse number 7 is masculine. So people say, well, if he's promising to preserve the words, then he would have to use a feminine pronoun there. And they, they sort of get tied up with that argument. When you go to Psalm 119, we were there earlier today. Let's turn there again. The Bible gives us the idea that God will masculinize that which comes from his word. God is going to masculinize it. Uh, It's something he does over and over again. Uh, Just for verse number, uh, well, I don't want to read all of them for time's sake. I'll just start in verse 111. We'll just do verse 111. Thy testimonies have I taken as a heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. The word testimonies is feminine. The word they is masculine. Verse 129. Thy testimonies are wonderful, Therefore doth my soul keep them. Again, the same disconnects, if you will, of the gender. Verse 152. Concerning thy testimonies, I've known of old, thou hast founded them forever. Same thought. Verse 167. My soul hath kept thy testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. Here's what the psalmist is doing. He's saying, hey, these words, these testimonies are coming from God, and so I'm going to masculinize that which comes from God. We do the same thing in the New Testament. We often talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Uh, the word spirit, the word sometimes translated Holy Ghost, that's, that's the word is pneuma. It, it, it's a word that's neuter. But every time the, the inspired writers give a pronoun, it's always a masculine pronoun. Why? Because it, it's coming from God. It, it's it, the Holy Spirit. He is God. And so as a result, there's this masculinization of it. The same is true in Psalm 12. So the context, even how the psalmist handles that which comes from God, shows us a promise that God is going to keep his word. Now, it's not the only verse we have to depend on. Look at Psalm 89. Psalm 89, and some of these may be typed out in your, in your notes as well. Psalm 89, verse number 34. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. God said, I'm not going to change it. I'm not going to lose it. It's not going to be broken. It's not going to be lost. He's not going to break it. Psalm 111, verse 7 and 8. 
The works of his hands are verity and judgment. All his commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever. Isaiah 40, verse 8, same thought. Isaiah 59, verse 21, same thought. We have promise after promise after promise of God promising to keep his word for every generation. Matthew 24, 35, I alluded to earlier, heaven and earth may pass away. His words won't. God preserves it. I want you to think about something. Do you ever think about the fact how many times the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament? Deuteronomy quoted often. Psalms quoted often. As it is written, as it is written, that it might be fulfilled. As it is written, thus saith the Scriptures. Over and over again. Paul, when he's arguing about justification, what saith the Scriptures? And then he goes back and quotes Genesis. Every time the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it implies that the Old Testament has been preserved to that day so they could copy it. Now, when you think about this, why do we not have a problem with saying God preserves the Old Testament for 2,000 years so the New Testament writers could copy it, but we think in these last 2,000 years God has struggled with keeping his word? It's the same God. And the God who keeps the Old Testament intact so that the New Testament writers can copy it is the same God who keeps all of it intact so you and I can read it for our admonition and learning. Jesus quotes the words of Moses. The Old Testament is quoted by Paul and by Peter and by John. Uh, We have the promises of God that show us God will keep his word and God keeps his promises. Secondly, we have the purposes of God. The purpose of God shows us there is a word from the Lord as well. The purpose of God. When you think about the purposes of God, we think about this from the standpoint of God is going to keep his word. And I want you to think about specifically Psalm, or I'm sorry, Proverbs 29, verse number 18. Proverbs 29, verse number 18. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law happy is he. I confess, for a long time I did not quite understand that verse. I don't have the best eyesight. Uh, couple that together with the fact I'm colorblind. It's amazing that one of my jobs in college was I sold suits in a men's clothing store. <laughs> what tie would you recommend with that? I think this one looks great, sir. Really? Yeah, it looks great. You, <laughs> sir, I'm just telling you, that's what I would wear if I were you. All right. <laughs> People walk out. My mom, He says, you know that don't match, don't you? Well, they look good to me. So, Mike, we've got to work on that. We'll just memorize some outfits or something. So I'm colorblind, and I don't have the best vision. I'm wearing contacts today, uh, but normally I'm wearing glasses. And here's the, here's the funny part. Until you get your eyes checked, you don't realize you have problems. You think everybody sees the way you see. When I was 12 years old, my dad began to let me drive. I know that's not legal. If there's any police officer in the room, I plead the fifth on if you put me on the stand. Okay. So at 12 years old, when the country rose, he'd pull up and say, Mike, you want to drive home? What 12 years is going to say, I'm sorry, Dad, that's illegal. He's going to say, absolutely. (laughs) He's going to say, we're not under the law, we're under grace. Uh, So at 12 years old, I'd start driving in my dad's little pickup truck. uh, And uh, my dad would say, there's a stop sign up there because my dad could see it. And I'm like, yes, sir. You know, Mike, it's really getting cool. Yes, sir. Oh, there it is. And I'd slam on the brake. He'd go to the front. And so my dad began to think, you know, maybe there's a problem with your depth perception. 
And I can remember the first day I walked out of an eye exam and with my new pair of glasses, I can still remember how the world looked. For the first time, stepping off a curb, I could actually see the depth. That was a, I can remember that. It was weird. We take it for granted. But I can, wow, that was just a cool feeling right there. I could see the step. Before that, it was just all one level ground. You just sort of memorized what the steps were, and you thought everybody else did the same thing. I remember sitting in the back of the classroom not having a squint anymore. Wow, that's pretty clear. I didn't, that was just a new idea. So I thought where there is no vision, the people perish meant that when I drive without my glasses, people may die. That's what I thought that verse meant. And that's probably a true statement as well. But in context, that's not what it means. The answer is actually in the text. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Here's the explanatory clause. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Vision is the same as law. So when you don't have God's law, when you don't have God's word, the people will perish. But when you have God's law, when you have God's word, when you have the vision from God, the people are happy. That's what the verse is teaching us. Now, I begin to think about that in the context of God's purpose because in 2 Peter chapter number 3, God says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God's purpose is that he doesn't want anybody to perish, but if there's no law there, the people will. So God's purpose demands that the word of God be preserved for each generation because God wants people to come to know him as Savior. It's interesting as well in Proverbs 29, he that keepeth the law, uh, sometimes that also gets translated as observes, like in Joshua 1.8, uh, he observeth to do. It's, it's the same kind of thought, observing, observing. The idea of keeping isn't just obeying, it's actually handing it off to the next generation as well. So happy is he that keeps it. Yeah, we're keeping it, we're obeying it, but also the people that keep it for the next generation, that's a happy group of people as well. When these laws aren't kept, passed on from generation to generation, the people perish. God's purpose demands that we have his scripture so that we can understand redemption. This word perish is an interesting word as well. It's got several different layers of meaning. There's a moral element. When people perish, what it means from a moral standpoint is people cast off restraints. You ever notice the world we live in? The things that used to be done in secret are now, now not only proclaimed from the housetop, they're trying to be legislated in our courthouses. Yeah. Moral restraints cast off. California is not known as a conservative state. I grant you that. We're definitely not the Bible Belt. I remember when we were having the, the we called it Proposition 8 out there in California about whether or not we could have same-sex marriage. So my wife and I put... Uh, a, a sign uh, in our yard advocating for voting uh, along biblical lines. And I uh, came out the next morning, taken out. I put another one. Came out the next morning, it was out. Put a third one. Came out the next morning, it was out. I told my wife, I said, I'm going to get this person. I'm going to hotwire that thing. So when they grab it, it's going to shock him. We're going to hear him scream. And I'm going to say, in Jesus' name, and that'll be, it'll be all right. The world didn't quite understand the reason I wanted to vote along those lines. They viewed me as a hateful person. What was done in secret was now being proclaimed in the open and now being legislated. Moral restraints were being cast off. People were perishing. There's a social element to this as well. The, the, from a social standpoint, when people perish, it means so society disintegrates. Well, think about the terminology we use. Uh, families split. He comes from a broken 
home. The very terminology is talking about this idea of a, of a perishing aspect. Society is disintegrating. It's not, it's not growing stronger. It's becoming more and more splintered. There's a personal element when people perish. Personally, it carries a, the layer of meaning of being unclothed. The spiritual dynamic of that is when you and I don't know Christ as Savior, we're viewed as spiritually naked. And God has to clothe us in his righteousness. I think probably the best illustration of this is with Adam and Eve. Remember when they sinned, they ate that fruit, their eyes were opened. They saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. What did they do? Adam went down to Walmart, ordered online probably, got some fig leaves sent to him. The Amazon truck pulled up and he got his fig leaves. His wife began sewing them together. And they, they made their, their suits of, of fig leaves. He probably even had a tie. No, probably not. And so he had his, his, his clothing there from the fig leaves. From Adam and Eve's perspective, they were clothed. From God's perspective, they were not. Because God said you can't cover the works of your sin by the works of your own hands. So God killed an innocent animal, clothed them in the, in the clothing of another that was innocent. Society is unclothed before God. They're naked before God. They need the clothing of the righteousness of Jesus Christ put on their account. And then there's a spiritual element as well. When people perish spiritually, they die for eternity without the truth. And it's not God's will that any of that happens. So what's his solution? He gives us his word. When you think about the idea of God's purpose, it demands preservation. And I want to say thirdly, the providence of God shows us preservation. When we talk about providence, we're talking about, literally the word means pro-video. It's, it's to see beforehand. And God, looking down through the quarters of time, knew how everything was going to work out. And so orchestrated the events whereby his word would be preserved. And I want to say in this, that first of all, there is a preserved text. A preserved text. Sometimes called the received text. Sometimes called the, sometimes called the Antiochian text. Sometimes called... Uh, the idea of maybe the Syrian text or the Byzantine text. There's a preserved text here. In John chapter number 17, Jesus said in his high priestly prayer that his word is truth. It's his word, not mine. He said, thy word is truth. It's the words, not just the thoughts. Thy word is truth. Truth. It not will be truth, not it used to be truth. It is truth right now, always has been, always will be. His word is truth, the ultimate standard by which you and I are going to be judged. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, in fact, this is a verse, I'll turn there for just a minute if it's not in your notes. 1 Timothy chapter 3, this was a verse that my dad taught me at an early age. My dad was an assistant pastor to church. He would sit up on the platform. And in the churches, I grew up in country churches. Probably the average size church I'd grew up in would be a church of about 50. Uh, and we'd have high days sometimes of 200. That's because we'd invite all of our friends over to come to our church for our special day. And they'd go back to their church the next week. We never heard of soul winning. We'd never heard of even going door to door. As strange as sometimes that may sound, I'd never heard of that until I went to Bible college. Uh, in fact, we had one time we had an evangelistic outreach because we knew the Great Commission. We just didn't know how to do it. And so we got hot air balloons, helium balloons, and we tied tracks to them, and we just let them go in the air and say, Lord, just guide these wherever you want them. And, and so the, the, the idea was sincere, but we really didn't understand what we were doing. And so when I think about where I grew up in, and I think about uh, all of these different thoughts, uh, I can also remember that uh, one of the other things that happened in our, our country church is that often the men sat on the front row. It was called the amen row. 
And so they would sit up there, and as the preacher would preach, they would be there and say, Hey, man, preacher, preach it there. Parker there, preacher. Shake that bush, preacher, whatever. Some expressions I never heard in the Bible, but they, they, they knew them. And so that was what I grew up in. And then the, the children sat with their moms and maybe the second rows over. That's how I grew up. And so my wife, when we got married, she's from a different style of church. In fact, she thought my church was charismatic. And so she went, she, we said, Mike, uh, I said, uh, you, you got to sit with me during church. I'm not sitting by myself. You, and so we began sitting as a family. And I sort of like sitting as a family. That's a great idea, too. And so uh, that's sort of what I grew up in. But I can remember on one particular occasion that I, I was not behaving the best. And my dad came off of the platform and took me by the hand, and we went outside, out through the double doors. We turned left went over to the stone tables we had out there for dinner on the grounds, and uh, went to the end of that where there was a hickory tree, and we had a come-to-Jesus meeting. My dad gave an invitation, and I repented. <laughs> we came forward. He sat me back down in the, in the seat. A few minutes later, I just was having a little trouble paying attention, so we went back out again. Went back out, turned left, went to the stone table, went down to the end of it. Switch was still sitting there. We had another come to Jesus meeting. Came back in. I went out seven times in that service. That's the number for completion. (laughs) I went out seven times in that service. Uh, I think I was maybe five, four or five years old. Seven times. And I never got taken out again. I learned something. But after a while, this verse began to take new meaning to me. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. <laughs> Came my life verse as a kid. But notice the description. Which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. There's a preserved text, God's word truth, and God has committed it into the care of his church. Interestingly, when we study those people that would be uh, spiritually related, if you will, to Baptist heritage, when you look at those groups of nonconformists and you look at those groups of people who did not want to associate with any type of a mother church, when you look at those groups scattered wherever they're at, what you find is the history of those people is also the history of our Bible. It's in the same text. So as we think about preservation, a couple of caveats here. Preservation doesn't start in 1611. I was in sixth grade, public school. My history teacher was a guy by the name of Jerry Hollis, big old man. He may not have been that big, but to a sixth grader who was severely underweight and uh, physically challenged by height, uh, he seemed like a big man at the time. And he, he was a believer. And we were talking about history, and he says, now let me talk about 1600s. And, and uh, he said, now Mike, 1611, you know what happened there, don't you? Honestly, I'd heard so many preachers say 1611, King James, but nobody had ever told me it was a year. I just, I just thought it was like the name of it, you know, like, 16, like 1611, that's the name of it. Nobody ever said it was a year. And so as, as basic as that sounds, I, I didn't know it was a year. And so when he asked me that question for the first time, the, the dots connected, hey, Absolutely, I know, sir, that's the year the King James Bible was translated. I just made it up on the spot, uh, but it was the right answer. Sometimes people think that preservation began in 1611. It didn't. God has preserved his word since the day he gave it. Sometimes people think that preservation only applies to the English Bible. No, God's will is not for any to perish, and that includes people who don't speak English. So God wants to preserve his word in those languages as well. And so the purpose, the purpose of God gives us truth for the idea of 
the preservation of Scripture. And in the providence, there's a preserved text. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, the church is the pillar and ground of truth. And here's what Jesus says about the church in Matthew 16. Concerning the church, he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What's that mean? Well, in 2015, my wife and I had the privilege of leading a group of college students over to Israel. We went in the month of January. Nobody there. So we got great pictures. We didn't have to Photoshop anybody out. There's nobody there. It's cold, but we didn't care. We were in Israel, and we had a group of about 10 or 11 people with us. And, and we went to this place where Jesus gives a story about the gates of hell shall not prevail. And when you're looking there at Caesarea Philippi, there's a huge rock there. And in this rock, there's these little niches cut out where they used to put their idols. Then there's this big cavern there that had a lake inside that was bottomless. And bottomless just simply meant they didn't know how deep it was in their day. So here was the tradition of the day. When something was bottomless, they believed it was literally a gate to hell, a gateway to Hades, a gateway to the underworld. That was where the demons would come out, and that was where uh, the attacks would come from. And so Jesus goes right to the very place where it was viewed as the devil's uh, headquarters, and Jesus marches right in there and says, hey, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. can't stop it. You cannot stop the church that Jesus founded. So think about this. If Jesus gives the church his word and the church will be in perpetuity until the rapture, then here's what we see in church history. There's always been the church, and this church has always had the word of God. The providence of God, how God did that. Well, how does that work out? What, how, how do we prove that? Well, uh, there's some notes here as far as in your notes, as far as understanding some timelines, if you will. And so let's think about what comes here in the timeline. Around the church in Thessalonians, Thessalonica, 60 A.D., Paul writes to them. And here's what he says to them in Thessalonica. For this cause, thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. In 60 A.D., the church of Thessalonica was taking this scripture as the word of God. In 100 A.D., Ignatius begins to write scriptures. He's a follower of John on the Isle of Patmos. He begins to write out letters with the scriptures contained in it. The letters he writes shows verses that are in line with the majority of manuscripts, the received text. Papyrus 66 from AD 125 agrees with the received text. The Syriac Peshitta, old Bible, because in Antioch, where they were first called Christians, after a while, Greek Language began to be not so well known, and so they wanted to make sure their people could understand it, so they translated it into the Syriac tongue. It's from the received text. The Italic Bible, which is an old Latin Bible, 157, received text. Gaelic Bible, an old French Bible, 177, received text. Coming down into Africa with Tertullian, church father in the early 200s, he talks about how he has the heir to the original documents themselves. I won't read his quote here, but he's pretty passionate about what he's saying. Cyprian, another Latin leader, writing somewhere around AD 225, In his letter, he quotes 1 John 5, 7. Remember 1 John 5, 7? Remember I said in 1952, the Revised Standard Version took it out because they said the oldest manuscripts don't have it? The oldest manuscripts they depend upon dates somewhere between 350 to 400 A.D. This is Cyprian in 225, 
quoting scripture from John, and he quotes 1 John 5, 7. Just interesting to me. The Gothic Bible, AD 350. Cademan's Old English, 670. The Old Slavonic, the Old Germanic, the Byzantine manuscripts, the Swedish Bible, Erasmus's Greek manuscripts, Tyndale's English, the Olivetan French Bible, the Coverdale, Matthew, Tavner's Bibles in English, Stephen's Greek text, the Geneva Bible, the Spanish Reina Bible, the Italian Diodati Bible, the King James Bible, the Bible that was translated for the Native Americans in the 1780s and 1880s. What do they all have in common? All these languages. Here's what they have in common. Receive text. What I want you to picture this morning, I want you to picture that the church has had one source they've gone to for the scriptures. Oh, we need to translate it for missionary work. Here's where we come. Oh, here's, a, here's a, the Cherokees need it. Okay. Oh, the Crete need it. Oh, oh the Seminoles need it. They're, they're coming to this source. We need to take the Bible to the old Germanic people. We need to take the Bible to the old French people. The old Latin language needs it. One source. And this was the source the church used from the time of its founding until 1881. So either the church had it right for all of that time, or in 1881, the church had to get it right. So we're not talking about comparing one English translation to another. We're going beyond that. We're going to the source. Where does it come from? Because a Bible is only good as the source it comes from. So up here is sort of a comparison of these two texts I've been alluding to. The majority manuscript, uh, the Byzantine, the, the received text, whatever term is used, What's it have in its favor? Well, it was closer to the location where the New Testament was written. We sometimes use this statement, I believe the Bible from cover to cover, right? We use that. Now, honestly, though, we do have sometimes some things in our Bible that aren't inspired. The maps. Okay. The maps are not inspired. But the maps are helpful. I can remember as a young preacher trying to figure out where Paul was doing and taking out the missionary journeys of Jesus or, or Paul and, and trying to just sort of get all these cities in line. And Here's what you notice when you look at the maps. There's a Byzantine Empire, which is to the north of the, the Mediterranean Sea. Down the south is the continent of Africa. Over here to the, to the east is going to be Israel. And so we've got all of this empire right here, the Byzantine Empire. This is where Paul planted all these churches. This is the region where the manuscripts for our Bible are found. So the location is like right there. So the idea is, okay, you're going to make a copy when the original is right here. You better make sure it's accurate because all somebody's going to do is just go right back to it, right? So it's closer in location. Now, the minority is closer in the date. So the manuscripts our Bible comes from aren't as old as the manuscripts that maybe the ESV comes from. That's a statement. That's a fact. I, don't, I can't create the facts to fit my narrative. That, that's the fact. We have to interpret the fact. In 1990, I graduated from high school, Christian high school in Georgia. And they gave me a graduation Bible. When I graduated, they put my full name on the Bible. Michael is not my first name. It's my middle name. I don't go by my first name. Nobody calls me by my first name except my neighbor. We moved into a house about 10 months ago. My neighbor can't remember my name, but he's a realtor. So I know what he did. He went and looked at the legal documents, and so now he calls me by my first name. And so my kids just laughed. Dad, why does he call you? I said, Dad, I don't know where. Just, he's trying, you know. And so I'm just glad he at least tries. But no, so if I get a phone call and it says my first name, click your telemarketer. Nobody calls me that. 
Well, my Bible they gave me for uh, my graduation has all of the name on there. So one of the great mysteries at West Coast Baptist College is, what does the J stand for? And I have people trying to pump my kids for information. They offer them money. They offer to buy them a drink at the Great Awakening, our coffee shop. Uh, They're all trying to get this out. It's really not that big of a deal, but they've made it a big deal, so I just sort of go along with it. But because that Bible has my entire name on it, it's been in a box since 1990. (laughs) Literally, in a box. If I take it out of the box, it smells like brand new leather. If I take the Bible binding over a microphone and open it, you hear it crack. The Bible is, it, it's, it's older than any Bible I use. Why does it look so new? Because I don't use it. Why do I keep replacing my wide margin Bible? Because I use it. So the date isn't so much a problem to me when I understand the, the history behind it, that as the copy began to wear out before they disposed of it and gave it a sacred burial, they would make copies of it first, and then, then you'd have a new generation of copies, and one of them would become the standard, and then you'd have a new generation. And, and you say, well, how do you know that they kept it close? Interestingly, God in his providence gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls that was found in the 1940s, 1950s or so, and a little, little shepherd boy found it. And when they began to look at these documents that are a 1,000 years old, they looked back and they had a 1,000 years of transmission history, and here's what they found. Wow, nothing's changed. The majority has been distributed widely. You find it all over the empire. The minority text distributed primarily in Egypt. The majority text used and recognized by churches throughout history in all languages. The minority hidden for centuries. One's a longer text. One's a shorter text. One is newer manuscripts, one is older manuscripts. One has a long history of use, one has about 150 years of use. So here's my assumptions. I either believe God has preserved his word or I believe man has to restore it. If I believe God has preserved it, I don't have to go look for a better manuscript, a new standard, because God has preserved it. But if I feel like man is sort of responsible for this and man needs to restore it, I'm always on this journey that's never ending. To use Paul's words, ever learning, Never able to come to the knowledge of truth. So comparison of text here helps us sort of keep this in the process. All right, so there is a preserved text that sort of helps us understand this process. But not only is there a preserved text, uh, we'll also say that there is a uh, protected text, a protected text. And I've alluded already to Jeremiah chapter 36 and 37, when Jehoiakim is going to destroy the Bible with a penknife. Famous preacher from yesteryear, T. DeWitt Talmadge. When the Almighty goes forth armed with the thunderbolts of his power, I pity any Jehoiakim who attempts to fight him with a penknife. I like that statement, and I like the spirit behind it. Uh, in that same sermon, he said, Let Voltaire come on with his philosophy and Hume with his scholarship and Chesterfield with his polished insinuations and Gibbon with his one-sided historical statements and Shaftesbury with his sarcasm and Hobbes with his subtlety and Bount and Bolingbroke with their armed hostility. Yea, come on. Platonic philosophers and German infidels and Boston transcendentalists, all ye helmeted sons of darkness, I charge upon you with a regiment of mountain shepherds and Galilean fishermen. Forward to the strife, steady, take aim, fire. Their ranks waver, they break, they fly. Victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Talmud believed in the power of Scripture, didn't he? In 140 AD, I told you about Marcion who tried to mutilate the Scripture. God didn't allow it. 
He protected it. In 303, Diocletian tried to destroy the scriptures. God didn't allow it. He protected it. 1526, the bishop of Tunstall is going to burn the copies of the scriptures. No, he just actually financed the work. Uh, Voltaire, Westcott, Hort, all of these different generations of people trying to stop the scriptures. God has protected his word. And that leads me to one final thought. There's a polluted text. And I want to show a little bit of a comparison here. There is, I've mentioned Origen of Alexandria, who basically took the Greek Hellenistic thought and he blended it with the pagan thoughts and the, the, the biblical thoughts and blended it all together. Chrysostom I've mentioned. I, I want you to notice some attacks on the, the authority of Scripture and really the authority in general. You ever realize today we live in a day that questions everything? <laughs> I was raised to respect authority. I was raised that way. And in fact, if, if I felt like uh, uh, a teacher had done something wrong and I came home to my parents, my parents never took my side. They took the teacher's side, and they directed me back to authority. And if they, if they believed the teacher was wrong, they met with them in private, but they always upheld authority because authority was sort of the, the backbone to society. But if you start looking at history with, through the lens of authority being attacked, it's interesting what you sort of see subtly happening. 1830s, there was a little teenage boy named Joseph Smith. I alluded to him earlier. Joseph Smith had a vision from an angel named Moroni, which, again, if I'm creating names for an angel, that name just has too much potential. I'd, I'd, I'd go with a different name, all right? And he says, which church should I join? Notice what the angel said. I, I use the word angel in, in quotation marks. The angel said, don't join any church, Joseph. They're all apostate. Listen to the next line. I will restore the true church through you. And years later, he established the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Biblically, however, here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Moroni said, the gates of hell did prevail against it, and I'm going to restore it with you. I've got to believe one of those two. I can't believe them both. <laughs> this is my truth. <laughs> okay. I'm going to believe Jesus on this one. All right. So 1830, there's this attack on the authority of God's church. 1841, a German uh, scientist, a German uh, guy who just really, really wanted to study scriptures by the name of Tischendorf began to study abroad, trying to find as many old manuscripts as he could find. Eventually, he ends up in a monastery in St. Catharines at Mount Sinai. Perhaps you've heard the story, but I didn't know until a few years ago that when I hear the word monastery, what I think of is, is a Catholic monastery because that's, that's, my, that's my paradigm. This was actually a Greek Orthodox monastery where they practiced speaking in Greek and they had Greek manuscripts. And as he went to the basement of that uh, monastery, he found an ancient manuscript older than any he had ever found. He began to smuggle it out and eventually he negotiated to get it out and it became known in history as Codex Sinaiticus, named after Mount Sinai. A manuscript that had been consigned to the trash pile by those who spoke Greek and those who could evaluate the Greek manuscripts there in their possessions had relegated that as worthless. Tischendorf began to elevate it as very valuable because it was older. The reason it was older was because the church wasn't using it. It comes back to that whole cycle again. But now all of a sudden the validity of Scripture is called into question. A few years later, 1859, a young scientist by the name of Charles Darwin introduced the world to a new theory that has become more than a theory today. It's become a, a religion. It was called the theory of evolution. And in that theory, 
He, there was no longer a need for a creator. So we've seen the attack on the church and the attack on scriptures and now the attack on God himself as a creator. And then later in 1870, Westcott and Hort began to attack the translation that we had as well. According to a Frederick Nolan who chronicles the account there in England at the time, Westcott and Hort were given four simple rules. Change the obsolete spellings. There are some spellings that are sometimes obsolete. Uh, one time in my sixth grade classroom, I, I was disqualified from my spelling bee. I remember it. I was bitter about it. I'm still bitter. <laughs> sixth grade. I came in the next morning, and I walked into the office to, to do something. I forget why. And unbeknownst to my teacher, uh, she was in there. She didn't know I was there. And she was playing the, the tape recording of the, the, ne- the previous day's spelling bee and said, uh, Mike spelled this word with the English spelling. And I know Mike goes to church. This is the way it's spelled in his Bible. It's not the way we spell in America, but it is a correct spelling. He got it right. And so I got to be back in the spelling bee and uh, go at it again. <clears throat> So there's some different spellings in the Bible. I get it. And so they were called to change obsolete spellings. They were called to update punctuation. Nothing wrong with that. Punctuation helps us know when to stop, uh, when to take a pause. Uh, Trying to read the Bible with no punctuation could be a task. And so they were called to update punctuation based on the changes of the grammar rules of English. Third, they were called to replace archaic words. There are some words that have changed meaning over time. Some words mean the exact opposite of what they meant 400 years ago. So they were called to update those and then they were called to update and polish the language in general. But with the overriding idea of staying as close to the King James Bible as possible, they threw all of that out the window, went and got a new text, and then gave a new translation. Let me show you some of these differences in the text. First John 5, 7. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. English Standard Version. I'm using that as sort of the base here because that's a very popular Bible today, It has the same type of a style of translation as the King James did, but from a different text. There are three that testify. That's a big difference. Now, in fairness, I'm not saying that the translators from the English Standard Version don't believe in the Trinity. I don't know whether they do or not. I would would suggest they do. I don't know that for a fact. I've never asked them. But it isn't that they don't believe in the Trinity or trying to steal it out. It's that the text they're translating from doesn't have it. And if they believe that text is the most accurate, then if it's not there, they can't create it. So they're stuck with dilemmas like this. John 7, verse 8 is an interesting one. Go ye up unto this feast. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus tells his disciples, you go up to this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast. My time is not yet full come. Then later on he goes. No big deal. If I tell my kids I'm not coming yet, and I show up an hour later, I came when it was the right time for me. I didn't go yet, but I did go. That little word yet is important, but notice in the ESV, you go up to this feast, I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And then he goes. There's an implication here that Jesus isn't being totally honest. That's problematic for me. Because Jesus is the Son of God incarnate. He can't lie. We often make fun of sometimes having to read the genealogies again when we had to read them in Chronicles, and now Matthew and Luke give us back to it again. But if you read them carefully, notice what happens. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 7, Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, or Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Then Ezekias, or Hezekiah, begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon. Notice the little changes. Abijah, the father of Asaph, not Asa. You remember in the Psalms, Asaph was a Levitical 
psalmist. Jesus isn't from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. That's an error. Uh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos. Uh, Amos was an Israeli prophet from Tekoa, not a Judean, not from Judah. That's an error. You see it? One manuscript evidence, one family of text maintains truthfulness in all of its accounting. One has problems. Revelation 8.13. I like this one because it doesn't deal with the deity of Christ. It doesn't deal with the Trinity. It's not so controversial. I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Whoa, whoa, whoa. English Standard Version. I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So, well, okay, eagle, angel. Here's where it gets interesting. If you turn to both Bibles in Revelation 14, verse 6, both Bibles will say, and I heard another angel flying through the midst of heaven. But if you're reading the ESV and you see, I saw another angel flying through the midst of heaven, you scratch your head and say, where was the first one? It's not there. It was an eagle. There is no first angel. When you get to Revelation 14, that's the first one there. It doesn't make sense. It's missing something. Uh, but when you read it in the King James Bible, when you read it from the, the, the line of the source that it's from, it's consistent internally. There's no errors. There's no confusion. A comparison of the text gives us something to think about. So we deal with this idea of the preservation of Scripture. There is a protected text. There is a corrupted text by which people have tried to uh, underscore uh, the validity of our text. Now, I've given you here on this idea a historical error. Matthew chapter number 1, historically the genealogies are wrong. I've given you a numerical error in Revelation 14, 6, when another angel, when it was an eagle to begin with, theological error when you have Jesus uh, stating inaccurate statements. Luke 23, 35 is a little more technical. It's a scientific error. Modern translations to call it an eclipse when Jesus is there at the crucifixion. Scientifically, the timing of the year is not possible which is why the received text uses a totally different Greek word, the sun was darkened. It implies something miraculous, where the critical text has gone with something more naturalistic, but in so doing so has caused a, an error with the timing of the seasons, a little more technical. But to say all of that, I say this. When we use the King James Bible, we're using a Bible that comes from a source that has been used from churches since Jesus began his churches. We're in solidarity with French-speaking Christians, Italian-speaking Christians, Spanish-speaking Christians. We're in solidarity with uh, ancient Russian Bibles and old Latin Bibles, old Germanic Bibles, because the church has recognized as a whole there's one source for going and getting the Scriptures, and that one source has been the received text, and that's where this comes from. God didn't just drop the King James down from heaven in 1611 and start all over. In Jude chapter 1, verse 3, we're told to contend for the faith. But then this next phrase which was once delivered to the saints. The idea there is God delivered the body of faith, our, our doctrine. He delivered it once with the implication he would not do it again. He delivered it once, and it was given to the church to keep it. If I take the critical text, God delivered it, and then he re-delivered it, and he keeps re-delivering it because we have to keep restoring it. To boil it all down with 2,600 translations, you either have a preserved one or you have a restored one. When we use the King James, we're saying that the Bible we use has been used by churches since 1611, but longer than that when you start looking at the text. And hopefully that gives you some thoughts to be able to defend our position a little bit better.